Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see your faces this morning. My name is Isaac. I'm one of the pastors here, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet. We are in the middle of, actually, the back portion of a series through the book of 2 Timothy. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles now or tap your way there, just like forewarning, our projector has been giving us all sorts of problems. So it may or may not be on the screen. We may or may not be able to reference all of the lovely um, additional scriptures that we're going to be on the screen with quotes from authors and stuff like that. Um, If not, that's okay. We also might even uh, not be able to have the words for the second uh, set of worship of there, but they will be on uh, the website if that ends up happening. So um, all sorts of fun things happening this morning. Uh, our lead pastor, Lorenzo Smith, is on sabbatical this summer. He's, he's taking his first sabbatical in 24 years of ministry, which is just astounding. We were so thankful as a church to be able to gift him with that. There's nothing like weird or fishy going on. We simply just want to give him rest. And so he's getting to take that time. He was just in Canada with his family. He's on his way back right now. Um, I've been seeing Instagram pictures. They're having a really great time. And our teaching pastor, Ryan Smith, who would normally be up here teaching, he and his whole family have COVID this week. So if you didn't already know that, if you haven't already been praying for him, please pray for Ryan and his family. They're doing all right. Um, I've been talking to him throughout this week. They're okay. But he was supposed to teach this Sunday, and I was actually supposed to teach next Sunday. So we're doing a little switcheroo. Um, If you read, if you were reading with us this week in our weekly Bible passage, Um, We were reading 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, um, but we will be learning from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 this morning, all right? So a little switch up, we're going to go backwards, Um, but we are in this this final part of a series that we call Endure through 2 Timothy. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, wrote, it's the last thing that he ever wrote, and it was to his young protege, a a young pastor in the city of Ephesus named Timothy, who is just struggling all over the place. Um, And it's the last recorded thing we have Paul ever writing before his death. So it, it has an incredible amount of importance, not only for Timothy as a young pastor, but for all of us as we see the life of somebody who is dedicated to following Jesus and everything, and we see him, what it meant for him to finish well. That's what we're really going to be looking at this morning. So the first part of the letter, if the slide does work and it goes up there, um, we saw the call to endurance. The second part of the letter, we saw some obstacles to our endurance. And then this final part of the letter is what we're calling the way of endurance, And Pastor Ryan introduced us to the first two of five practices that help us to endure on this way. The first two were to remember the saints, those who have gone before us, who have handed the baton down to us. Some of you can think, those of you who follow Jesus in your life of the people who kind of faithfully were teaching you about Jesus and kind of handed the baton off to you. The second was to receive the scriptures. And we're actually going to be doing an entire series in the fall 
after the summer on what it means to receive the scriptures, all of the wrong ways that we read the Bible and what are the ways that we can actually receive the scriptures faithfully. There's so many ways to misinterpret God's word. So I'm really looking forward to that. Ryan gave us a little teaser for that last week. Um, So the third practice will actually be next week. Um, But (laughs) if you guys want to stand as if you're able, as we read from the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Pray with me. Lord, all of us desire to endure in such a way that at the end of our lives, we can look back and say that we've finished well. And as we consider the example of Paul today, who endured through a tremendous amount of hardship, would you enable us to see and take stock of our own lives, the ways that we are practicing um, the faith right now, whether we are enduring in a way that uh, will last, I pray that you'd give us uh, sober-mindedness to take stock of really what our life is all about and whether there needs to be changes to that. Lord, we pray that your spirit would enable us to uh, consider our lives with honesty, to look at what you're doing, to respond as we, as we look at this faithful man of God who finished well. I pray that you would illuminate your scripture to us in a way that changes us and conforms us more into the image of your son, Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. All right, you can be seated. So the back half of this letter is really more practical instructions for those of us who have said yes to following Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you're visiting and following Jesus isn't something that you've committed your life to, and you're kind of just checking this whole church thing out, That's kind of just like a disclaimer. This is really more for those who have said yes to Jesus. I want to know what it means to follow him. I want to know what it means to live my life in a way that's consistent with what he taught. So you're going to kind of like observe and look on as those of us who have said yes to following Jesus, see what it's like to learn from a person who has finished well. They come to the end of their life and they look back on the entirety of their life and they said, I've done it. So if you guys have friendships or or if you have family members in your life who are elderly, you've probably noticed that at the end of your life, you can either get salty or sweet, right? Um, It depends on the character of the life that you've lived. And I, uh, thankfully, I have incredible grandparents, Um, my my two grandparents on my dad's side, I call them Saba and Safta, which is the Hebrew words for grandma and grandpa. 
They had just moved back from Israel last year, um, or actually two years ago, right before the pandemic started, thankfully. Um, And last year, we got to celebrate my grandfather's 90th birthday. And it was an incredible time. It was like a little mini family reunion in Michigan. My grandmother, his wife, uh, she has dementia. She's had dementia for about five years. She, at this point, she doesn't really know who is who. She doesn't really know what's going on at any given time. Um, it's kind of a toss-up whether she remembers you, your face, your name. Um, so we were kind of wondering, you know, is she going to understand the importance of what's going on uh, during his birthday? And we all gathered. We had this lovely meal in the backyard of my aunt's um, home in Michigan. And we, we started kind of like giving some toasts to my grandfather about uh, his faithfulness to Jesus, the way that he has taught and discipled so many people throughout. He's a, he's a minister, he's an evangelist, he was a pastor for many years. Um, and we were wondering, what is, what is Safta thinking? Is she, is she all there? And then at one point in the meal, she, she stood up and she said, I'd like to make a toast as well. And it was clear that for that moment, she was really with us and she was lucid and she was cognizant of what was going on all around her. And she just wanted to like thank God for all of the ways that her husband had loved her over those many years. And all of us were crying and we just like, we couldn't deal. And it was just an incredible moment of God's faithfulness in the lives of these two people who have been married for almost 70 years now who when they look back on the entirety of their lives together, what they remember is God's faithfulness to them in spite of challenges. And so the central reason for Paul's appeal to Timothy comes to focus in our text this morning. We've been reading about how Paul is encouraging Timothy to endure in spite of hardship, that there's been so many challenges that he's had to weather, all of these storms and people, false teaching, people who have left him, tremendous amount of suffering that he's dealing with. But all of that is kind of coming into focus with Paul's words in this section. Basically, Paul is saying, hey, listen, the reason I'm telling you this is because I'm not going to be around very much longer. And now it's your turn. It's your turn to pick up the baton. So all of Paul's charges, his exhortations, his encouragements to Timothy are that much more heartfelt and potent now that we're considering this reality. There are several enemies to a life well-lived that could prevent us from saying with Paul that we have fought the fight and finished the race. When we look back on our lives, it's often tinged with regret. In the present tense, when we try to do something to change what we know needs to be changed in our lives, we often get discouraged and become complacent. And when we look to the future, when we're not sure what's going to await us, we can become anxious about what's going to happen. The enemies of a life well-lived are regret, complacency, and anxiety. Despair or regret about the past or anxiety about the future often prevents us from actually living in the present. When we dwell on the past, it can't be changed. When we worry about the future, it can't be known. So what do we actually want to be able to say 
when we're at the end of our lives, when we look back, I'm sure all of us would love to have Paul's outlook here. What would it take to be able to reach the end of our lives with the same confidence that he has here? When he looks back on his life and he sees it through the lens of faith, when he takes stock of his present situation that death is awaiting him and he sees it with a sober-minded reality, and when he looks and anticipates the future and all he sees is hope. How are we engaging with our lives now in order to be able to say that then? The fourth uh, practice in the way of endurance um, we've titled reverse engineering your life. So looking ahead, seeing somebody who, like Paul who's at the end of their life, what does it take to get to that point? And what do we need to be doing now in order to get there? We need to take stock of our lives in these three tenses. We need to have a faith-filled perspective on the past. We need to be realistic about the present. And we need to hopefully anticipate the future. So first, a faith-filled perspective on the past. Verse seven, Paul says once again, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Rather than looking back on his life with regrets or touting accomplishments with pride. He's not actually saying, oh, look at me, I've done all of these things. In the Greek, the emphasis is on the noun. So the fight I have fought, the race I have finished, the faith I have kept. He's not bragging. His assessment is that looking back over his entire life, that all of the adversity that he experienced up until that point was all worth it. Every single hardship, when he looks back, he says, I would do it all again. See, the operative metaphors for Paul's life that gave meaning, meaning to his story included the expectation of adversity. He uses this image of a fight, which is not like, you know, judo or boxing or something like that. The, the word refers to the Olympic Games, the famous ancient Greek Olympic Games. All of the different competitions were viewed as these fights, these, uh, these scrapples, these like challenging things that you have to engage in. The race was another one. Olympic races have been going on for like 2,000 years. And so Paul often uses this athletic imagery to talk about his life and his faith and what endurance is all about. So when you hear pastors use like cheesy like sports metaphors, it's Paul's fault, right? <laughs> he did it first. But in order to be able to say that we finished well, we have to have categories, these metaphors for our lives that include and expect adversity. If you've ever trained uh, for a marathon before, I have not, so I'm not speaking from experience. I'd like to maybe someday, but what I hear is <laughs> when you're training for a marathon that you have to gradually increase the amount of mileage that you're running every single time you go out. So you start with 12 miles, it's really challenging. Maybe not start with 12, but start with like three, okay? <laughs> Three miles, that's probably all I could do anyway. Uh, and you gradually increase. And, 
Every time that what seemed like a lot to you before starts to seem like normal, you increase by a few miles. By the time you're ready for the marathon, you're running like 17, 18, 19 miles just for your training. Whereas at the beginning of your training for a marathon, that would have sounded like insane to you. So by the time you hit 26.2, yeah, it's hard, but your body has been prepared for it. The race that Paul is talking about is not a sprint. It is not a quick fix solution to endurance. And it's also not just a long distance race, but like we learned last week, it is also a relay race. The implication of Paul saying that he has finished the race is, Timothy, now it's your turn. In the previous letter to Timothy in verse 12 of chapter six, he told Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. And now Paul is saying here, I have fought the good fight. He isn't exhorting Timothy to do anything he hasn't already done himself. And like Pastor Ryan shared with us last week, we are standing in a stream of 2,000 plus years of people faithfully finishing the race and handing down the baton. So Paul is saying, I've kept what's been entrusted to me. The gospel witness that God has given me, sharing the good news of Jesus with all of the known Gentile world, that is everyone who is not Jewish, that was his mission. And he has successfully guarded it from false teaching and all of the obstacles that could have derailed his witness. And he looks back with faith. But what about us? What about when we look back and we have regrets? What about when we look back and we see pain that doesn't make sense, that we don't really have a category for? How can our perspective shift to be more in line with Paul when we look back and see our lives through these categories of faith? What allows us to see the scars of the past with faith and clarity and not bitterness and regret? There's an author named Adele Calhoun who writes about this. Let's see if it's gonna be on the screen. Probably not. Oh, yes, there it is. Okay, Adele Calhoun says, the question comes, how am I going to frame my story? Which memories will I choose to focus on? Will I let my pain metastasize into the territory of the future like a cancer? Will I recall the best or the worst about others? How will I fit my scars and love together? This is an incredibly challenging set of questions. And the amazing thing about Paul's declaration of faith is that his perspective is in spite of all of the opposition and suffering and challenges that he himself has endured. If anyone could get to the end of their life and take issue with the degree of challenges that they faced up to that point, it's Paul. Earlier in, in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he shares about some of his challenges. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jewish leaders 40 lashes less one. That was just enough lashes to kill you, minus one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for every church that I have ever planted. Okay, <laughs> if anyone had the opportunity to get to the end of their life, look back at their life and say, maybe I would have done some things differently. Maybe I would have made some different choices here. It was Paul. And yet, the reason Paul can look back on his past and remember it as a victory is that the scars of his story were shaped by the scars of Jesus' story. As God says in the book of Isaiah, when I remember you, I remember that I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Jesus' story is one of his scars bringing healing and redemption to all people who trust in him. And Paul's story is woven into the story of Jesus. He sees his life through the lens of Jesus's challenges and Jesus's scars. And so he says later in that same book in 2 Corinthians, he says to me, that is God, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So if we're going to practice, likewise, looking back at our stories and seeing our lives through the lens of faith and seeing the scars that we've inherited through the scars of Jesus, we need to view our past through the lens of faith. And that is the first practice for re-engineering, reverse engineering your life, rather. Adele Calhoun again says, practice remembering your life in decades and ask the question, who was God to me during that time? How did the events of that decade affect me and my choices? And where did I see God's hand at work? So we need to practice remembering our stories up to this point in our lives. See all of those challenges. See each decade, each season of life through this lens of faith. Where was God at work in your life? So first, we need to look at the past with faith. Second, we need to have a realistic assessment of the present. And that's what Paul says in verse six. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. So he's using present tense verbs here as opposed to past tense, and he says, I'm ready. He looks death in the face, and he says, I'm ready. He has a realistic assessment of his present situation rather than naive optimism. It'll all work out. Denial, like... I don't really know if this is going to happen. You know, like death, death is just like 
It's, God's probably gonna get me out of this one too. Like he just got me out of all of those other challenges. He has a realistic assessment of his situation. And he uses this language. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, <laughs> which is not something that we say nowadays, right? Like some for the homies, right? <laughs> He's actually talking about the language of the temple, okay? Every single day in the ancient temple in Jerusalem, there was a drink offering that was offered on the altar as a way of saying thanks to God. What you would normally have drank, sometimes it was water, sometimes it was wine. So this is sacrificial system language. And Paul is saying that he sees the entirety of his life as being a continual offering to God day after day. So by the time he gets to the end of his life, where he knows that his death is imminent, he's ready because he's not doing anything different than he has been since the moment that he met Jesus. His entire life is a gift to God. Just like he says in the book of Romans, chapter, one, verse, chapter 12, verse one. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, the sum total of Paul's life since meeting Jesus has been one of continually offering his life as a sacrifice. And he had practiced this so many times of saying, my life is not my own, but belongs to God, that by the time death is staring him in the face, by the time his death was imminent, he was ready to fully offer it up. I was reminded of the story of a, a missionary um, in South America back in the early 20th century named Jim Elliott. Uh, Jim Elliott was a missionary who wanted to reach this completely unreached group of people, this tribe in Ecuador. And he uh, had no idea what he was going to face. But by the time he got there and he had just a, a handful of people who had joined him in the mission, he made contact with these people and had started trying to share Jesus with them and had offered them things and had made a couple of friendships. But one day there were 10 tribal warriors from this tribe that came and slaughtered him and his best friend who had come on the journey with him. And his wife, Elizabeth, posthumously after he had died, published many of his writings. And he said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Paul's assessment of his life is that by the time he's ready, by the time his death is staring him in the face, he's ready to give it because he knows that it is not, his life is not his own anyway. He says, I am being poured out. The implication is, I've given my life to God and he's using it as he sees fit. He also says, the time of my departure has come. He has a deep clarity. He's not grasping for time. He says, it is time. The reality of our finiteness, the reality that actually every single day that we live is a gift, 
Every breath that we breathe in is God's grace. As one of my mentors says, we don't pay the oxygen bill on our own life, right? God is the one who's given us every single day of our lives. So we need to take stock. We need to have an honest assessment of our present tense, just as Paul, as he reaches the end of his life, has an honest assessment. Are we living a life right now that has a trajectory of hopefully anticipating life with God that will be devoid of regret? Are we living a life right now where our trajectory is one of being able to say, I'm ready? The person that we will become is the person that we are practicing becoming right now, every single day. As author Annie Dillard says, she says, how we spend our days is of course how we spend our lives. So the second practice for reverse engineering your life is to come up with what is called a rule of life. If you haven't heard that term before, a rule of life is uh, not like a bunch of rules that you write down like thou shalt nots. A rule of life is a simple framework a helpful, healthy, flexible framework to help you organize the spiritual practices that enable you to become who God is calling you to be. The things that we know that we're supposed to be doing, prayer, reading scripture, participating in community, refraining from things that are harmful, all of those things, sharing our faith with those around us who need to know Jesus, all of these different things that scripture tells us to do, there is a way of organizing things, these things into perhaps like a simple document, maybe even something that you write on your mirror, maybe something you write in your journal, maybe it's an Excel spreadsheet for those of you nerds out there. Um, there are so many good resources out there. Um, John Mark Comer, who uh, Pastor Ryan uh, quoted last week, has an entire uh, resource on his website, Practicing the Way, that helps you develop a rule of life but there's a really simple one that I've used in the past that's, uh, there's a really like nice image for more like image oriented people. It's probably not gonna be up there, it was. Um, but if you go and search what's called the common rule, yes, there it is, okay. Okay, this is called the common rule. And so for you visual people, it's a really helpful tool for us to start practicing the things that enable us to order our lives in such a way that when we look back, some of the things that helped shape us to get to this point where we're saying, I'm ready, are the things that we're doing on a daily and weekly basis. So you see, oh, dang it. You see, um, you saw in the middle there, there were four different images. Um, there is three times daily prayer, one meal with others, reading scripture before you check your phone, and one hour with your phone off. That's a very simple framework for how to engage with your everyday discipleship, your everyday rhythms of following Jesus in a way that refrains from things that could be potentially challenging or harmful and engages with things that will be helpful and life-giving. The weekly framework around the outside is one hour of conversation with a friend, curating media consumption to four hours per week, 24 hours of refraining or fasting from something, and one Sabbath day per week. This is a very simple way of saying, right now, 
I'm going to start practicing the things that I know will enable me to reach the end of my life and say, I'm ready. It's, this is a document you could recu- regularly update so that it reflects what God is doing in your life. It doesn't have to be a static, fixed, legalistic thing. But I would encourage you to sit down and think about what is God calling me to do and what are simple practices that I can do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis that help me get there. So we've had a faithful perspective on the past, a realistic assessment of our present. And finally, Paul has a hopeful anticipation of the future. In verse eight, he says, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul says, we can look to our future, he can look to his future and have hope for three reasons, the what, the who, and the when. He looks to his future and has hope because he knows that what awaits him is a crown of righteousness or justice. He's going back to the athletic imagery here. Back then in the Olympic games, you wouldn't receive a gold, silver, or bronze medal. You would receive a laurel wreath, a a simple like tied up little laurel crown that garnished your head as you finished your race and you won. He's anticipating this crown that was going to be afforded to him at the end of his life. Similarly, ancient races were not round tracks the way that we have them today, or these kind of like oval-shaped tracks. They were straight paths where the end, the finish line of the race, was always in sight. So fixing your eyes on the goal, on the end, on the finish line, was key to the motivation of the athletes. To run with endurance, we need to know what it is that is awaiting us at the finish line. What comes after we cross the finish line of life is not usually something that younger people spend much of their time thinking about, right? Whenever we have kind of a sober moment of realizing what's awaiting us, that we, in fact, will eventually die just like everybody else, we quickly shake off our mortality by getting a dopamine fix on our phones or doing something else that helps take our mind off of the reality of our mortality. Because if we spend enough time thinking about it, it would produce this sense of anxiety about the future. So our ability to keep moving through life is usually marked by smaller goalposts that come and go, right? When you check, pass through the, the checkpoint of high school graduation, you look ahead to college graduation. When you Past the checkpoint of college graduation, you look forward to getting your dream job or getting married or whatever. And then if that starts to slow down, you start to get antsy and you need a new goalpost. So what do you do? You get a side hustle, (laughs) right? There's these smaller checkpoints that we try to employ to motivate us to keep going. But what if we were insured? What if we could be sure that what awaits us at the end of our lives was a crown of righteousness. 
What if we could draw motivation to endure, not from these smaller checkpoints, but by the very end goal itself? Because not only was what awaited him motivating him, but who was awaiting him was also motivating Paul. He says, the Lord, the righteous judge, is the one who will award me this crown. Paul's hopeful anticipation of the future was based on his intimate knowledge of the Lord as a righteous judge or as a judge who judges justly, as opposed to this most likely unrighteous judge that Paul was about to meet in a matter of probably days before he gave up his life who would sentence him to death in the Roman court, Paul's eternal destiny is already settled because he's going to meet a God of perfect justice. See, our understanding of who God is, his character, greatly affects whether we are looking forward to the end of our lives with anxiety or with hope. As the author A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So if you know that what awaits you at the end of your life is meeting a God who is a righteous judge, who never has a fault in his judgment, no matter what type of injustice we experience on this earth, we can be confident that God's character of justice and his infinite wisdom means that no person, not a single soul, will ever be judged unfairly. Do you have that confidence? Paul was saying, I know that the Lord will award me this crown of righteousness because of who he is, because he is a righteous judge. And finally, he knows when. He says on that day, he will award to me this crown. He's not just talking about the day of his eventual death. He's also talking about the day that Jesus returns, the day when the judge will return to this earth, the very one who has given his life for us will return and bring us to himself. This hope is the key to endurance, the key to keeping our eyes on the prize. It's, you know, it's often said of Christians or people who are expecting some kind of afterlife that awaits them that's an award is that they're so consumed with what comes after death that they're not spending any time thinking about what's happening during life, right? In other words, you're so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good, right? You've never heard that phrase before. C.S. Lewis often is quoted as paraphrasing. He says, the more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you'll be. Because focusing on eternity actually galvanizes us to be more engaged in the present. If we know that what awaits us is something that is unshaken, something that is promised to us, that gives us all of the freedom from anxiety about the future to work for justice, to work for peace, to love others well during the time that we have here. And Paul based his entire life on this hope. He said, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
So the final practice in reverse engineering your life would be to write your own version of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. All right? You can do it in first person or in third person. But read, I encourage you this week, as you think about the future, think about whether you're anticipating the future with hope. And look at the end of your life and then look backwards and say, what do I have to do to get here? Whether it's, you might want to take some time writing like something that somebody would say about you at your retirement party, or if you're like extra morbid, you can write your own eulogy. Um, that's fine too. You can write it in the first person like Paul does here, or write it in third person like what somebody else is saying about you. Focus on things like character. What would somebody say about the type of person you are? What would somebody say about the types of relationships that you have? What would somebody say about what it was like to have a conversation with you? How do you want to be remembered? And then work backwards. So these three practices for reverse engineering our life, to look back on the past with faith, to assess our present with soberness and reality, creating a rule of life that will enable us to practice these things into the future, and then look back on the entirety of our lives. Imagine that you were at the end. What would somebody say about you? We can face that day. We can similarly with Paul face the future for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, expecting a crown of righteousness or justice because, and Paul knew this as well, because Jesus had already received a crown of thorns. The judge who will award us the crown of righteousness is the one who had already gone before us and he received a crown, but it was not a crown of righteousness. It was a crown of thorns. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what? Endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. While, the, while crossing the finish line depends on our endurance, it does not depend on us to earn the crown. Jesus already did that for us. Jesus has already, it says, for the joy set before him, which means he was thinking about each and every one of you each and every one of us throughout all of history whom his life was being given for. It was for that joy that he decided to endure in spite of the shame. So while crossing our own finish line, while being able to reach the end of our life well depends on our ability to endure, it does not depend on our ability to earn the crown. Tim Keller is often quoted as saying, do you realize that it is the only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance. The verdict is already in 
for those of us who have trusted in Jesus. When we reach the end of our lives, we know what the judge is going to say because Jesus has gone before us. In a relay race, you have the anchor position. It's the person that runs at the end of the race. So you know you've put your fastest runner at the very end of your team. So if you have a lot of laps to make up, the only hope is that this person, your fastest runner, is going to be able to make up the time that you've lost throughout the, the entirety of the relay race. But with the gospel, it's actually reversed. Jesus, our anchor, has already run and won the race first. And it is just up to us to endure. And finally, all of these things, all of the tenses that Paul is talking about, his past, his present, and his future, having all of these and holding these in tension with faith, having reached the end of his life well, he is no longer just thinking about himself. He's also thinking about his life as a blessing to others. What does he say at the end of verse eight? He says, the righteous judge will award me the crown on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. At the end of his life, with his own death in view, Paul's concern was for Timothy and for everyone that Timothy was in charge of blessing with his life. His concern was for Timothy and for everyone else who knows Jesus and the blessing that they're sure to experience because they put their trust in him. His main concern was not that his life would be preserved any longer, but that his example of endurance, of having run the race well, would be one that fuels Timothy to live a life of endurance. And by extension, all of us who are waiting for the return of Jesus with hopeful anticipation. Those who have these three tenses in tension, past, present, and future, toward the end of their lives can focus their last moments of energy on being a blessing to others rather than focusing on themselves. And for that, we remember them and their legacy as a blessing. You see this all throughout the story of scripture, whether it's Jacob, the patriarch of Israel, blessing each one of his sons before he dies. You see this even in Jesus on the cross, right? What were his words? Some of the last recorded words he was saying, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He says to the thief who is being crucified next to him, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He says to his mother, weeping at the foot of the cross, behold your son. She, his mother Mary was given charge to, to his friend John to take care of her. He was thinking about his own mom as he was being crucified. Last week, Pastor Ryan encouraged us to remember the saints, to remember those who have gone before us in our lives and have kind of handed off the baton. And as I thought of this specific point about what it means to reach the end of your life and be a blessing to others, I couldn't help but be reminded of my friend, Sean, who about seven years ago passed away from lung cancer. He was only 28 years old. Uh, he was one of my best friends. 
And we, we had like journeyed together. Like we had done lots and lots of ministry trips together. We had traveled the world. We'd been to India, to Nepal, to Thailand together, sharing the gospel with Israeli backpackers. We went on, he was like one of the guys that you could just call up and like you would immediately be thrown into some insane adventure that you would never imagine would have happened. Um, whether it's the middle of the wilderness or downtown San Francisco, um, it was just incredible knowing him. And he was only 28 when he was diagnosed with lung cancer, and he passed away July of that following year. Um, he and his wife had only been together for about a year and a half by that point. And he was a, he was a filmmaker and an avid blogger, <laughs> and nobody ever read his blog. <laughs> uh, it was like a joke. He was kind of one of the most sincere, heartfelt guys, but we were like, Sean, dude, nobody reads your blog. Why do you, why do you keep doing it? But when he started blogging and recounting the story of how he was dealing with his lung cancer diagnosis and all of the treatments, suddenly hundreds of people started reading his blog. Thousands of people, eventually, and his memorial service was streamed by over a thousand people. And we joked with him, man, like God, God's way of getting people to read your blog was just to give you lung cancer. And he was like, he was the type of guy where like he found that hilarious. Um, and because he was, a, he was an avid videographer and a filmmaker, he wanted his last moments documented. So his older brother, Aaron, in the last moments of his life, before he was intubated, before he eventually gave his life, his brother Aaron brought a, a camera into the, his hospital room and filmed him as he prayed for each one of his family members. So when I think about, sorry, when I think about who I'm enduring, my example, who's handed the baton down to me, it's him. It's a simple truth that we spend pretty much every day trying to avoid that every day we have as a gift. As we entrust our lives to God, as we look back, as we look forward, as we take stock of the present, it should give us enough sobriety to recognize that simply saying yes to entrust your life to God is a declaration of hope. And that hope can give us the self-forgetfulness we need to be a blessing to others. Let's pray.